Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. On the podcast this week, I have Taylor Jenkins Reid to talk about her novel, Daisy Jones and the Six. This novel is all about Daisy and her backup band, The Six. It's set in 1970s Los Angeles and it reads like a he says, she says kind of memoir of sorts. We're all trying to work out who's lying, what really happened to this band. It's such a great book and I was lucky enough to go to Taylor's house in Los Angeles and we had lots of kind of collisions of where um, our lives had intersected and her dog makes a brief appearance on the show too. You might be able to hear his heavy breathing in the mic It was such a pleasure. Also, I have to say, the show has been picked up by Amazon and Reese Witherspoon is producing the series. So read the book before that comes out and I hope you enjoy the podcast. It's my great pleasure to welcome Taylor Jenkins-Reed to the pod. Thank you for, well, I was about to say thank you for being here, but actually (laughs) thank you for being here. (laughs) So we should explain, we are in Los Angeles and I was that sneaky person who invited herself to your home. (laughs) But I was very happy to have you. Very, very excited. So we're here um, in Sherman Oaks, LA. Glamorous Sherman Oaks, which is the San Fernando Valley. So it's not the cool part of LA, but that's all right. I think it's all cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's, well, I'll take it. It's it's like the family, family friendly part of LA. It's like the suburban part. But I have to say, as I, I got an Uber here, and I, because I, I used to live in LA, I lived here for four years. Oh, you did? Okay. And I used to have a therapist mm-hmm. about five minutes away. Oh, my therapist is five minutes away. Maybe we had the same therapist. <laughs> we could unpack that later. <laughs> yeah. But at the same, and then I had a voice coach because the embarrassing past is, you know, trying to be an actress. And I used to put the CDs on in the car to practice, like, mm-hmm. arr, 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 to get as I would drive over here. And sometimes I'd get the therapy and the voice coach at the same time. So as I was driving here thinking there were just so many associations going on. Sure, sure. You thought you were going to go talk about your deepest feelings and fake an American accent while doing it. Yeah, which is impossible, which is why that (laughs) never worked out. But all that is to say, thank you for having me in your home. We better um, kind of get it out there now that we have an animal called rabbit in the yes, room. Yes, yes. But he's not a rabbit. He is a dog. He's a little misleading. He's a dog named rabbit, but he likes to hang out in my office. So he's here with us as well. Well, I'm wondering because we're sitting in your office and you have a beautiful home, and but this office is quite calm and zen with some kind of beautifully structured books on the wall. I'm wondering... Because we are here to talk about your latest book, Daisy Jones and the Six, is this where that book was written? Um, This is where that book was edited. Um, And this office, pretty much as you see it, was 
in just in another home five minutes away. <laughs> but um, when my daughter was born two and a half years ago, we, we my husband and I had bought a house. And then um, by the time she got to be about a year, year and a half, we were like, I think we need a little bit more space. And so we moved here. And that was right after I sold Daisy Jones, but I hadn't yet dug into my editor's edits on it. And so a lot of the editing of it and the fine tuning of the lyrics and stuff was all here. So we have to talk about this book. When I was lucky enough, you know, to get the galley version of it, I just started reading and often I'll just pick up a book, start reading and I'll know pretty soon whether it's something that interests me or, you know, it's kind of going to be the right fit for the podcast. So this book reads like a transcript of this this band. Right. Um, and delving into the history of this incredibly iconic band and how it rose to fame and then how it split up very dramatically. Mm-hmm. Now... I am that person who then went to Google Daisy Jones. <laughs> She's not real. No. I know. I know. I wish she was real. So what was the impulse behind making up particularly this woman and then um, her, let's say, nemesis and love, yeah. Billy? Yeah. Can you talk about this type of relationship and maybe where it was inspired from in history of music? Yeah. Well, I have always been really drawn to the drama behind music. Um, Even if if it's something as sort of silly on the outside as reading like all of Ariana Grande's lyrics and then being like, well, this one's about Pete Davidson and this one's about, you know, I'm just really, I'm always curious what artists are putting in their work. I remember in the nineties, like reading no doubt lyrics and being like, is this about Kevin Rossdale or, you know, like I, I just love doing that. So that was the germ of it was my love for listening to music and trying to understand where the lyrics come from. And some of these romantic musical duos that I've been long fascinated by the most obvious one being Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham. But there were many, many others um, that I was drawing from. The Civil Wars are really interesting to me as a band that um, they were not romantically involved, but they had this very creative output. And yet clearly something went wrong between the two of them because they broke up very, um, abruptly one night. Um, or you have people like, um, Emmylou Harris and Graham Parsons, you know, were they together? Were they not together? Um, you know, now I think Emmylou Harris says, you know, we were, um, but at the time it was unclear, Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash, um, you know, or even as silly as it is, like when you look at like Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, like they're not together, but boy, does it feel like they are when they perform together. Um, so I wanted to create people like that. I wanted to create my version of, are they together or are they not together? You know, like, why does it look so good when they're together if they're not really together? And that's how I came up with Daisy and Billy. And that's the beginning of this really complicated, messy love story between two people who are just fire um, when it comes to their talent, that they, they combust in this incredible way and create great music but they also sort of make each other combust personally too. 
Well, there's a great quote that I think you said when you were talking about your previous book, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, and it was, my passion is capturing what it feels like to be in love, be it romantic or otherwise. And it was interesting to read that and then think about this book, because it does feel like this is about so many different types of love. And one of the loves I found really compelling is between Billy and his wife, Camilla. So for everyone listening, you can imagine if Taylor's just been talking about this combustible chemistry between Daisy and Billy, and now we learn, oh, he had a wife? Yeah, it can't be, yeah. Um, So part of what was really interesting to me about taking these characters of Daisy and Billy who are so passionate and have this this fiery sort of connection for better or worse. Um, What's interesting about that is what is in contrast to that? Because there are a lot of love stories that are epic and larger than life and they feel, you know, doomed from the outset in this very romantic way, but that's not real life love. You know, those are stories that we tell and we're captivated by them, but real life love is every day. You know, it's very boring. It's very mundane. It's choosing to stay every single day, despite how difficult it may be, despite how easy it may be to say, "Mm, I'd like to check out now, please. Um, And so I wanted to have multiple types of love in this story. And Billy and Camila meet very, very early on in Billy's career. He's basically just the lead singer of a wedding band when they meet. They're both very young and they have an incredible connection and they build a life together. And they have built that life together and they're holding on and they have a kid and Billy is trying to stay sober when he meets Daisy. So it's pretty much like the worst time possible for him to meet someone that really ignites him in that way. And he's pulled between these two sides of himself. Um, I don't want to reduce it to say that he's he's pulled between these two women because they're never really in opposition to each other and they, nor do they feel that way. Um, it's not really a love triangle. It's not anything. No, and it's um, not competitive. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not like, Ooh, who will he choose? I don't, I don't think it's more about the process of, um, you know, two different women that ignite different parts of himself um, and how he moves through his days weathering that um, and how, how sustainable that is. You know, it's only sustainable for a certain period of time and that something has to happen. Um, and that question is what happens? I know, which we cannot talk about <laughs> now. Oh. Um, but when we're introduced to Daisy... I was wanting to highlight and asterisks and kind of dig into these lines she has. And one of them I'm just going to find, which I thought that really connected with me was, I, I am not a muse. I am the somebody. And I think for so many girls and women, I don't know about you, but I feel like I started this whole, you know, acting into writing thing. And I used to be drawn to men who were doing the thing I had wanted to do. Oh yeah. Oh sure. And I didn't even realize at the time. Yeah. And then there's this switch where you're like, oh, 
I think I'm smarter than that guy. I just <laughs> right. wanted, it's been yeah. interesting talking to him about yeah. his process, but actually I want to do this thing. Yeah. And I feel like Daisy learns that lesson really quickly. And there's one great moment, which I'd love you to tell us about, which I think, I hope everyone doesn't go and recreate this, but I should have brought some champagne for us because we're both <laughs> yeah. drinking coffee. Yeah, that's true. But can you tell us what the up and down is and yes. if you made that up? Yes. I'm so glad that you're asking about that because there's um, even more to the story of an up and down than um, than is on the page. And that is um, that, so here, first of all, what's an up and down? So I made it up. I don't think it's real. (laughs) Um, But essentially Daisy Jones, by the time, I mean, really early in the book, we've established that she's got a drug problem. And it's, I mean, problem is a strong word only in that it's the seventies and a lot of people have a drug problem. So it's a little, she doesn't necessarily think it's a problem. She's not thinking of it that way, but she's taking a lot of diet pills. She's taking, um, you know, she's drinking a lot. She's an insomniac, so she's got trouble sleeping. So every morning when she goes someplace, she will order what she calls an up and down, which is the champagne to keep, the the coffee to keep her up and champagne to keep her down. Um, And she's drinking both of those things to sort of level herself out. And she is at a restaurant with a guy that she's dating who is a, you know, writer-director character. And um, she orders an up and down. And he goes, oh, that's so good. I got to write that down. I got to put that in something. And Daisy, that's that's when Daisy starts talking about the difference between, you know, being a muse and being the somebody because she gets really mad. And and she says, you know, I was, I was so frustrated by the idea that I'm just supposed to be here to inspire some man's great idea. You know, like I am not somebody's muse. I am the somebody. That was a scene that came to me really early on. It's early in the book, but it was also early in the drafts. And it was something that was very important to me to say, not just, it was important for Daisy to say, but it was also for me, Taylor Jenkins Reid, to put in something because I once went on a date with a guy who um, I wasn't really that into, but he was very nice and he had really pursued me. And I thought, you know, give the guy a chance. And so we're at Barney's Beanery, which is a um, <laughs> a bar in Los Angeles. It's like, you know, it's like of all the bars in LA to be at, Barney's Beanery is kind of like a sports bar. It's like not, it has not a the most LA history, thing. It does. It? it is a huge history. And it's also got an incredible like rock history in particular because it's right in the middle of West Hollywood. But West Hollywood is such a vibrant um, sort of queer space where anything goes and Barney's Beanery is like the most like down the line sports bar you can have. So it's it's just a funny, it's a funny space. But um, I was at Barney's Beanery with this guy and I'm, we're on this date and I don't like the taste of alcohol. Um, and so I had ordered a Washington apple, which is a fairly mild cocktail and a diet Coke because I didn't like the taste. So that was your chaser. That was my chaser. <laughs> and I had said to him, making fun of myself, I was like, well, here's my cocktail and here's my chaser. And he thought that was the funniest thing that, that because I didn't drink, I needed a chaser for a cocktail. So he says, that is so funny. And he takes out a pad 
from his back pocket, this guy who, who fancies himself a writer and he writes it down. He goes, I'm going to use that someday. And I was boiling with rage for two reasons. One, let's say I didn't know what I was saying and I didn't know how funny it was. Um, it's still not for you to take. I'm not here for your amusement. I'm not here to inspire you by accident or not. So that was already frustrating. Um, but I knew what I was saying. I knew it was funny. I knew it was absurd for me to make a joke. And then for you to think you can explain my joke to me as if I don't get my own joke. And then you're going to go use it later on. I, I could not believe that he would do that. And so when I was imagining this idea that Daisy Jones is with somebody and they're taking something from her, I was like, I want to put that in there. But of course it couldn't be that Daisy Jones can't handle her alcohol. <laughs> that would be crazy. Daisy Jones does not need a chaser for a very mild cocktail. Only I do. So I had to come up with something else, something that was the Daisy Jones version of that, that she was aware of, that she knew why it was clever. And this guy was trying to explain her to her. I feel like that is the crux of the book. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. Because um, it felt like as a woman, yes, that was the lesson for me out of yes. this. And it was so important that I just loved that. Thank you. It was the most important piece for me in writing it because, you know, it's something I still struggle with, to be honest. I think we just teach women, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident, um, to be quiet, you know, and, and that if they do speak up and they're not immediately agreed with that they should back down. I'm still doing it every day, you know, but... I really wanted to create a character that wasn't going to do that, that just didn't, wasn't going to accept the premise. No, I have something to say. I'm here. I'm important. You're not going to take from me. This is mine. Um, you know, there was a, a large part of my life where I would have thought being the inspiration for a man's idea was, was hugely flattering. Um, it's only um, now that I'm married to a man who would never reduce me that way, um, who encourages me to speak for myself, who, you know, that I, I'm 35 now, I have a daughter, I've, you know, come into myself in certain ways that now I feel like, okay, yeah, no, I'm not here for, for you, I'm here for me, and my ideas are mine, and they're for me to say and I would like people to listen to me say them. I don't want you to take them and use them for yourself. Um, but, you know, a muse is something that we've really romanticized and we've made it something that um, for a long time was the, was the highest aspiration a woman could be, to be a great man's muse. And so um, once, once I saw in my head that Daisy would just immediately reject that idea. She made a lot more sense to me. I was like, okay, like I was early on in the process. I was like, okay, if she's going to make this stand and this is what she's going to say, I understand the trajectory she's going on. I understand who she is. It just is so interesting because that idea too, that isn't it often the people that we don't even like oh, that sure. we give a chance and they <laughs> take something from us? Like I'm oh, just yeah. thinking of you going yeah. on a date. Yeah. Yeah. So often it's the thing you're like, I'm going to go again because I, I, my instincts are telling me yeah, I'm not into it. I'm not yeah. into it. And yet you go and they're the ones that yeah. 
Oh, right. Take well, from I think you. that's I think that was what was so infuriating about it was because, you know, I'm here to to give you a chance. You know, you've pursued me to the point where you've made it very, very clear how serious you are. I'm not sure that I'm into it, but you've pushed it to the point where I'm gonna give you a shot. And with that shot, you're gonna take something from me that you don't even think is taking. You think you're flattering me by saying you wanna take it from me. You know, thank God I got mad because I think it just as easily I could have fallen for it and said, oh, he thinks I'm so charming, you know? Um, I'm I'm proud of myself that it clicked in my brain of going, oh no, that's totally yeah, crap off. <laughs> like, you know, because again, like I, I've fallen for that narrative so many times that, that, you know, we're all here to support the important men with their important work. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why I need someone like Daisy. Um, for me, I need someone like her in the world because I need someone to look up to. I need someone to say the things that I'm daring to think in my head, you know, and that's what Daisy is. And that's what Evelyn Hugo, who I wrote, you know, before this was for me too. I'm nowhere near as strong and, and, um, outspoken as Daisy. And I'm not nearly as, um, driven in a particular way as Evelyn Hugo, but, but I write them because I want someone to look up to. I want them to exist so that we can all be a little bit more like them. I definitely felt like I needed a Daisy too, or I imagined a, a part, an Angela that yeah. was more Daisy. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I can channel yeah. her more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's honestly my dream. I, I, it really is. Like, you know, Daisy's deeply imperfect, as is Evelyn Hugo. I'm not saying everyone should go out and behave exactly like them all the time. There's a lot of problems with that. But there are elements to them that I want a little bit more of in my soul. Um, I want to feel a little bit more daring, um, in the ways that they're daring and somewhat radical in the, in, in their approach to things, you know, Daisy, um, in addition to the fact that she, um, really insists on being heard on her own terms, she also refuses to dress a particular way to please anyone. And, um, you know, on the outside that may seem fairly simple. Like, oh, she's got her own style, whatever. But what we're actually talking about is if Daisy shows up in a tank top and no bra and men are talking about her and women are saying that she's undermining herself by doing that, Daisy Jones is saying, I'm not here to please you. I'm hot and I don't want to wear a bra. And that's completely fine. Um, She's not taking on other people's reactions to her body. Um, and that's something I'm really proud of too for her um, because I'm not there, you know, like I'm very aware when I'm getting dressed of what will someone think of this or am I presenting a certain way or is this to this or whatever. Um, you know, Daisy Jones is saying, I will dress how I want to dress and you are expected to respect me regardless of what I have on because you should be respecting me based on who I am, not the fact that it's hot outside and I would like to not be wearing a jacket. And isn't it amazing how when we get there ourselves or because she respects herself and just walks the, her life that way, when we do that, somehow it has this effect. You know, it's the classic thing of when people walk into a room. It's like when we meet someone for the first time or a certain person has a, 
they're okay in their own skin. It's so powerful. And I think I, I, it's something I think of on a daily basis because I'm always trying to get closer to feeling comfortable in my own skin and just saying, you know, this is who I am. You can take me or leave me. Um, it's what I'm aiming toward. I'm, I'm far from it, but it's always where I'm trying to go. And I look at, um, you know, someone like Cardi B, for instance, who, you know, Cardi B is so uniquely herself. No one could be her and she can't be anyone but who she is. And she does so many things that people would say don't do. She shares a lot of stuff on social media. She, you know, she swears like every other word, you know, she says things she shouldn't say, you know, whatever, should, should, should. And yet it's magic. I I honestly think that woman is just magic. Like she is so entertaining. She is so charming and compelling. And I can't take my eyes off of her because she is 100% herself. She's in her own body being whatever her soul was meant to be. And it is electrifying. And I think about every time I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that word or I didn't explain myself properly. And what if they don't understand? Or I shouldn't admit that I felt this way or I shouldn't have worn that shirt. And it's like, Cardi B is not doing that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cardi B is not she is leaving a party. On. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's not going, oh, maybe I, oh, I don't know. Did I possibly, do you think someone was offended? You know, she's like, this is me, take it or leave it. And I'm taking it, man. Like I, I find her um, just enchanting. And there are so many examples of that. I think, you know, um, even like Spike Lee, who uh, at the Oscars, you know, he's wearing a purple suit and gold sneakers. You know, everyone else is dressed to the nines and, you know, tuxes. He's got these wacky purple glasses on. And it's just like, yeah, he's just being Spike Lee. And the rules don't apply to him. And they shouldn't, you know? Um, oh, and all these rules. I know. There are so many rules. Oh my God. I know. I know. I just feel like I'm, I'm such a rule follower. And I'm always like, oh, was I not supposed Me to? Me too. Oh, I'm oh, trying God. to break oh, it though. No. Like it's so, you know, I think in general we're, humans don't like to break a rule, but women, it's even harder because the stakes are much harder for us. Um, and I just, I want to channel that feeling of, you know, they'll, they'll like it or they won't, but this is who I am. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm you know, it's a process, but I was saying to my husband the other day, you know, I have a tour coming up and I have a lot of different um, events and, and outfits that I have to plan. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, well, should I not wear this? And I don't know. And is this what I want to put forth or whatever? And I just had the thought of like, you know what, what if I just like Adam Sandler did? And I was just like, this is me in my sweatpants. Every single place I go, you will know that I will show up in sweatpants. And eventually people will just say, oh, that, you know what? That's just how she is. She just yes. shows up in her sweatpants. Like, oh, you know what? Taylor Jenkins Reid doesn't wear pants. She only wears leggings, hasn't worn pants in, you know, 20 years. Um, and people will get on board. If you just like commit. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I just got to I got to choose to commit. You know, I tell you what, like if a year from now you haven't seen me in a real outfit, we'll <laughs> say I succeeded. That's great. I don't know about your experience, but I feel with mine, the relationships and friendships I've had with women. Yeah. 
are almost in a way a model for how you could try and have a romantic relationship only in the way that there's such an openness and an honesty with some relationships that you almost you, you practice in that way yeah. first. And for Daisy, maybe, you know, you talk a little bit about how because of her upbringing, for her even finding that relationship was difficult and such a blessing. Yeah. So so Daisy is born into a family that's like pretty glamorous, like her, her father's uh famous painter and her mother's a French model and they live in the Hollywood Hills behind the Sunset Strip um, and they've got a lot of money but they just don't care about their kid at all um, you know they're always busy doing parties doing parties I sound like I go to a lot of parties don't I they're always you busy do. doing parties yeah. <laughs> they're always busy you don't go having to parties, parties. You, <laughs> you do <you> parties <laughs> they, they have a lot of parties and they're just not paying attention to their kid. And so she really does grow up um, with that sense that she doesn't matter. She doesn't matter to anybody. Um, and she starts going out clubbing to the places on the Sunset Strip, which is very easy for her because she lives right there. So she's walking to all these places. She's very young, about 14. And at one of the places, she meets this woman, Simone, who is a black disco singer who is just coming up. Um, and Daisy and Simone become best friends. And Simone really becomes Daisy's family. And there were a lot of reasons why I wanted to include Simone in the story. Um, but the biggest one for me is that in my life, the most transformative relationships that I've had have been my female friends. And, you know, it's funny, um, you know, in Wuthering Heights when the quote is like, you know, um, whatever souls are made of his and mine are the same. Um, I always think about that quote when I think about my, my girlfriends. Um, I have a lot of friends from high school that I'm still very close with and they make me feel okay um, just sort of existing in the world. I'm never alone. You know, I could be in a fight with my husband and my daughter could be driving me nuts and, you know, and the dog's barking or whatever. And it's like, well, I have my friends, um, which sounds really hollow, but like I have these, um, three friends from high school and we're all in this one text chain that we've called, I don't know why, but it's called the peanuts. We, I think it was a joke, but then it just lasted too long. And so now like we're always texting each other all day, every day. And it's like, you know, my husband would be like, are you talking to the peanuts? You know, it's like, well, you know, and, and it's like, well, what do the peanuts say? You know, it's like, I always know that I have the peanuts. Um, or my friend Aaron from high school too. It's like, you know, I have people who accept me in a really like radical way of it doesn't matter what I do or say, there is love there for me. Um, that's wildly, wildly powerful. And yeah, I'm really fortunate. Like I've been married for 10 years. My romantic relationship is very important to me and I'm very proud of it and I nurture it every day. Um, my friendships with my friends have um, made my life easier and made it livable. And so Simone is that for Daisy. And there's a part in the book where Daisy's feeling really alone and um, and she's talking to Simone on the phone and Simone is on tour. She's on a 
tour of Europe. And, and Daisy's just saying, you know, I have, I feel like I have nobody. And Simone says, you know, imagine that you're a blinking light and I'm a blinking light. And when you look at a map of the world, there are two blinking lights. So no matter where we are, we're both blinking together, you know, in sync. And to me, that is, you know, that's my friend Julia, that's my friend Emily, my friend Ashley, my friend Aaron, um, you know, my friend Sarah and Tamara, no matter where I am, we're all blinking, right? I'm always going to be there for them and happy to be there for them. Um, that's a love that uh, there's there's truly nothing like it. And I like to include that in as many of my books as I can because um, I think it's just as important. Um, but this one, it was really, really important because Daisy needs to have a home and she doesn't have one at her home that she has it with Simone. Well, and to that point too because she does have a drug problem that gets really um serious yeah which you know stevie nicks we know yeah. about yeah. her addictions too and without that friendship actually you get a sense that daisy wouldn't be alive yeah i mean everyone has to have somebody um that's there holding the safety net and um and I think that's what's really tough as someone like Daisy is there just weren't that many people to hold the safety net. You know, I've had periods of time in my life where I felt like maybe I don't have enough people holding the safety net. Um, but there always is somebody. And um, Simone is doing that for Daisy. Daisy hits rock bottom a number of times and doesn't better herself. And Simone is always there. She doesn't abandon her. No. Right? It would she be, doesn't abandon her. And yet it would be really difficult yeah. when you have a friend that has a drug or alcohol problem like that at some, sometimes you have to go, I don't know how to be there, there Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, Simone, um, doesn't abandon her and Simone also understands and has the ability to understand, um, that there is a boundary that she can't fix Daisy and that all she can do is, you know, bear witness to what is happening and be there when Daisy's ready to change. Um, you know, which is, which is a really, um, very special type of friendship. That's not an easy thing to do. For that research of how the drugs worked, like that, um, you know, the uppers and the downers, and we know that, uh, well, in the book, you talk a lot about how people would say that it's the downers that kill you. Right. And I found this quote, I actually interviewed an Aussie journalist who'd had a, an interview with Aaron Zork, Zorkin, mm-hmm. that's his name, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, know, I know his <laughs> yeah. name. Aaron Zorkin, you're good. But um, he had this quote that said, because I actually hadn't realized about mm-hmm. his addiction. Oh, yeah. Aaron Sorkin was, had a Coke problem? Yeah. Uh, okay. And he wrote A Few Good Men high. Oh, and, really? Okay. And they had to then make a decision not to. To, to continue. To continue and was incredibly worried about whether he would be able to write yeah. when he wasn't. That's really hard, especially when you're being rewarded for your addiction, which yeah. a lot of times artists are. Well, in this quote he said was, the real problem with drugs is that they work right up until the moment they kill you. And I wanted in the research for this because the language, I mean, you write from the perspective of all these different band members and that ease and 
knowledge of which they talk about drugs, right? Yeah. The benzos, the this and that. It's so authentic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's really, yeah, and it's so a lot of pretending on my part. I think that's why, you know, you yeah. read it and you're like, whoa, was, that must have been what it was like. Yeah. It's so constant. I guess, how did you work on that? And those yeah. voices and making them so authentic. Especially given that I can't handle a cocktail. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of funny because I am such a teetotaler. Like I'm such a, um, I, I'm uh, pretty boring in that regard. Um, and so I started by reading a lot of rock um, interviews and biographies and taking note of, you know, how far the drugs went, what the drugs were, um, you know, even, even something is, as sort of silly as like, you know, they're all backstage and, uh, they're all drinking. Well, what are they drinking? Right? Like someone like Billy is going to be drinking something different or have a taste for something different than someone like Warren. And I did have a moment where I was like, well, what is Daisy drink? You know, because champagne and yeah, brandy. That's right. Champagne. That's it. Yeah. I was thinking, I'm gonna try that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Combo. I know. Yeah. She um so alcohol is something that is when people are into it, they have a very specific interest in it. Most people aren't like, Oh, just give me anything. People are like, you know, Hendrix with a twist or you know, whatever. Um, I don't even know what that is. I think it's gin. <laughs> it's but but um so what I did was I looked at a number of different rock stars and what were the drugs that they were doing? What was the way that they were doing them? Um, and how would that fit in here? And there were a couple of different things that I wanted to be paying attention to. One is that something feeling real versus being true are two different things. So if I wrote in this story that the six was getting up to the same stuff that the Rolling Stones be getting up to in the sixties and seventies would have been a very disturbing story. Um, the truth is that Keith Richards is doing a lot of heroin, um, you know, shooting it up, you know, I, that's not, um, it's going to feel really over the top in this book. So how do I take what the truth is and find what, feels real. Um, truth is stranger than fiction, I guess is what I'm getting at. You know, the, the wild stories of rock bands in the sixties and seventies are stuff that if I wrote it as fiction, you'd be like, this is ridiculous. No person can do this many drugs. And I'd be like, well, yes, they can technically, you know? So there was that of wanting it to feel, feel real. And then the other pieces that, you know, drug addiction is, is, um, and, and alcohol addiction. Um, this is real painful stuff. And this is stuff that people are facing every single day. It's people that I love have faced. Um, it's not to be um, taken lightly. It's not to be played for plot. Um, so I wanted to make sure that, that if um, these people are alcoholics or drug addicts, that, um, you know, it's honest and it's earnest. Um, there's a lot of pain here. And so I basically did... Um, two things. I took the feeling of wanting something from my own life. And then I changed what those wanting, what, what the characters wanted to things that were much more rock and roll than my life. So like there's a period of time where day, where Billy is talking about, um, uh, his behavior on the road 
and the things that he's gotten up to that he shouldn't be up to, which are things I've never done in my life. Um, but he talks about there's um, the point where you have a you have a black line and then you cross it. And now, even though you tell yourself you're never going to do it again, you've given yourself the very dangerous information that you could cross that line and it wouldn't be the end of the world. So suddenly you start crossing that line more and more and more and it just fades and it gets grayer and grayer until one day you're looking back and you're saying, I think there was a line here once. And, and um, also if you, if there are only consequences, if people find out things, yeah, right? And then yeah. I definitely, that was a really powerful moment in the book, which will let people kind of discover a bit for themselves. But when you get away with something. Yeah. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just, I don't know if you, I remember I accident, I kissed someone. I mean, when mm-hmm. I was so young. Yeah. You know, when I had a boyfriend and like when you do that the first time, I really don't do that mm-hmm. because that feeling was so revolting mm-hmm. and that it was, I don't, I can't even describe it anymore. It was like shame and yeah. disgust. And I thought I can't live with this right. sense of mm-hmm. myself. So I'm never going to do this again. Right. right. And see, it's interesting that you could self-correct because a lot of people can't. And they'd say, yeah, I felt disgust or yeah, I felt ashamed of myself, but I got away with it. There were no other consequences. So I'm going to do it again. And I think also, you know, we have a, a lot of people that, that like to feel ashamed. That's part of the human psyche, huh. you know, is like, yeah. oh yeah, I did something and I shouldn't have done it and I feel bad about it, but I'm used to feeling bad. And, you know, feeling bad is feeling something. And I think that's a big part of Billy's um psychology, you know, is, is not feeling like he's worth much. And, and so making decisions that he knows are self-sabotaging. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit more similar to you. I, I'm not a big self-sabotager, but then I will in like these very concentrated ways where I'm literally watching myself do exactly what I just said I wouldn't do. And the thing for me, as banal as it sounds is like, is sugar. Like my addiction to sugar is just like, like off the charts. Like I will literally say to my husband, like, you know what? I'm only going to have one cupcake today. That cupcake I just had, that's the last one for today. And then two hours later, I'm eating half a pan of brownies and I'm going, I shouldn't be eating these brownies, but I can't stop eating these brownies. And you know, it's, that is such a mundane sort of addiction, but that's where, um, that psychology makes sense to me. I can tap into the psychology of, um, someone that does exactly what they shouldn't be doing. You know, it's just in rock and roll, it's not sugar, it's heroin, you know? Um, but the idea is the same. Can you stop yourself from doing the thing that you want to do that you shouldn't do? And um, I mean, that's the story of so much of our lives. And that's Billy's story in particular. He, he, he is a man constantly wanting to do one thing and knows that he should do the other thing. And he's always conflicted about what those two things are. And I do think, um, I think it's compelling, right, to watch anyone be stuck between two places and seeing what side of their soul went out. That's always going to be interesting. But I also think in terms of who he is as a rock star, um, I think that's really kind of cool. Like here's this bad boy and he's good looking and he can sing and he's talented and he's just going, I am the sort of person that would naturally sleep with all these women and then do all these drugs, but I'm not going to, I'm going to 
hold it together as hard as oh it may gosh, be and, and go home to my wife. You know, I mean, that's love. That, um, that there, that there's a sexiness there of that type of masculinity of saying, you know, no, the, the power here is in controlling myself. Well, and it's, yeah, being able to control your impulses right. and really, I mean, that's what so much of life is, isn't yeah. it? Like I'm making a choice. And yeah. when you're sober, you're able to make, you can walk away mm-hmm. far more easily than when yeah. we're not. Exactly. Another really interesting part of the book is the sh- the role that Rolling Stone has yeah. in um, shaping these narratives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can you talk about some of these journalists or was there a certain story that um, inspired the type of story that went on in the book? You know, when like a journalist would travel with the band yeah. and they would write these pieces that were, and they were so intimate yeah. and yet they had the power to yeah, shape the narrative for the world. Yeah. So I think it's really fascinating, this relationship between rock and rock journalism. Certainly we know existed in the seventies between rock and rock journalists. Um, the most obvious entry point we have into that is the movie Almost Famous, right? Like Cameron Crowe, as a teenager, he's on the road with this band. I mean, the movie's fiction and Cameron Crowe's real life is obviously his real life. Um, So I shouldn't conflate the two. But this idea that you're trying to get access and you're trying to get a good story, but you're also observing these sort of day-to-day sort of things about a band and pulling it all together to tell this story. But what I think is the most interesting about that process is less the time you spend with the band and more how certainly at the time when, you know, now we have a thousand different news outlets and different ways for fans to talk directly to an audience. But back then really like you're, there's a couple channels and um, Rolling Stone was one of the biggest ways for uh listener to understand the band that they like, right? So that's an incredible amount of power that that journalist has. You're setting the image and the tone and the whole vibe for this band. You're you're the lens through which we see this thing. And that's what's really fascinating to me about um, rock journalism, especially someone like Jonah Berg, who is the um, fictional rock journalist in Daisy Jones and the Six. He is invited to spend time with the band on a number of different occasions. And the articles that he writes about the band have a very real impact on how, not only how the band is seen and their success, but also how they see themselves. You know, he's a mirror reflecting his own lens, right? Like it's not a total, you know, everyone brings their own opinion to it. So it's not really spoiling anything to say that the first time that Jonah Berg meets with um, the six when then it's Daisy Jones and the six are two different acts, um, but they're performing on the same bill. And, um, and what he writes is an article called the six that should be seven. And Jonah Berg is the first person to say Daisy Jones should be in this band. It's crazy that Daisy Jones is not a full fledged member of the six. Um, and everyone in the band has their own reactions to that. That has a very, um, that gets a very strong reaction 
Daisy is very excited by it. Um, she's like a kid at Christmas, you know, like, what are they all going to say? I love this idea. You know, and Billy is like very put off by it. And, and um, the other members of the band are all at different places with it. But Jonah Berg, as an outsider writing about this band, is in a unique position to say, oh, whatever it is you think you're doing, here's what it looks like. Here's, here's what it looks like to the rest of us. And I'm just, I'm just fascinated by that because that's the beginning of, of when we talk about um, star image. Like this band is, is um, one thing in the inner circle, but who are they on the larger stage of 70s rock? The, the reader of this book needs to know that just as much as they need to know, you know, you got to know what it looks like in order to know how that's different than what it felt like for them. Jonah Berg is how you figure out what did it look like? And it looked like this crazy, talented, massive band with this electric chemistry. Yeah, he definitely helps. It puts the band in context and to how they were seen around the world. Yeah. And then we can liken it to bands we know. You're like, oh, they were Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. in in their reach. Right, exactly. She was Janis Joplin in yes. her, yeah. like, um, electricity yeah. on stage. Yeah, or Linda Ronstadt or, you know, um, I mean, she's, it's, it's funny, she's a lot of different people at, at once and I... Um, I think that's why someone like Jonah Berg in the in the book is as helpful to me as the writer as he is, is because it's a really easy way for me to tell you, like, um, in the in the world of Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Steve Miller Band, you know, here here's where you should imagine they fit in. And now you've had many of your books kind of developed into things yeah. and you've written scripts for things, but Daisy and the Six is going to be yes. an Amazon series produced by Reese Witherspoon, which yes. gets, I'm sure, pretty crazy. What pretty was that thrilling. process like yeah. in terms of, because the book, we're recording this and the book hasn't even come out yet. Right, right. We're still a week and a half out or a week out. Um, so it was really crazy. It was really crazy because as someone that works in both film and books. I have long been enamored with what she's able to do in terms of getting projects off the ground. And it's fast. really incredible. She does it fast. She does it well. And she does it with um, the right intention. Um, she is telling stories about women and women's inner lives. And she's doing it unapologetically and very uh, powerfully. So, you know, take away the fact that she's like this very glamorous movie star. Who who wouldn't want to work with someone who has that kind of track record and that has that much passion? So we submitted it to um, Hello Sunshine. And, you know, sure, yeah, submit anything, right? Like, why not try? It's like buying a lottery ticket. Like, oh, sure, I'll pick up a lottery ticket. Nothing's going to happen. Maybe I'll even, you know, remember to check it next week, see if I won. But like, that's obviously, you don't think, I wasn't sitting there like, oh, fingers crossed. You know, you just, you, you submit your work and you hope that, that, um, somebody takes liking to it. But when you're submitting it to Reese Witherspoon, you understand that you're up against, you know, a bunch of incredible projects because everyone wants to work with her. So when I got an email from my manager and like very late at night, one night that was like Reese, Reese read it in a day, they want to talk to you. It was like, Oh my God. Like, like I, I was, 
I mean, just white as a ghost. Like it was like a like my eyes wide open, my you know jaw to the floor. Um, it was just really really cool. I think that will probably be one of those things I remember forever because it just came out of nowhere. It wasn't like oh you know what Reese is reading it or like oh they're actually going to take you know maybe which is which is how you get most yeses in your life is is it's like you know it starts at a uh, perhaps and it grows to like mm, this might happen you know this was just one day there was no shot and the next day she wanted it um which is incredible and uh scott newsetter and michael weber are attached to write it they are some of the best screenwriters in town i have long been a fan of their stuff um 500 days of summer was their first movie and i just loved that movie so much when it came out um so it really feels a little bit like a dream team. Like I'm pinching myself. I'm like uh, first in line to want to watch it. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, I know I wrote it, um, but like I'm so excited to see what you guys do with it. I want to be, I just can't wait to watch it. Well, because we'll have to wrap up soon. So I have this new thing on Lit Up and my dream is that at the end of each season, people will you know, we'll be able to see which has been the most popular episode and like the six most popular ones. I want to make a candle that's the scent oh my of the God. author. Oh my, well, I'm, I'm, I have a candle problem. Okay. So let's make it about Daisy and the Six. Yes. And Taylor Jenkins Reid. Okay. So if there was like a crossover of yes. what you would like to be, like, do you want it to be like like dirt or yeah, what pine you can have a, just like a whole slew of yes. words, whatever colors, something. So it's got to be, it's got to be in conflict, right? It's got to be two different smells that are kind of working together, and and they they come together to be more than the sum of their parts. I'm going strong floral on one side, like a lilac. I love a honeysuckle. I even love rose, even though it sometimes has like an old lady smell to it, but I love all those gardenia. Oh, gardenia. <laughs> I love gardenia. So that's on the one side. And then I think like, oh, maybe we could do like a sandalwood or a tobacco or like a kind of like manly, like undernote maybe. So it's like, it's, I mean, what I'm designing, a perfume person could be listening and going, that would smell like garbage no, this is but we can have someone interpret this. okay great i yeah i want it to be in conflict with each other i want like the the floral feminine and i want the like smoky um you know kind of like tobacco dude smell too oh, i'm just imagining it's kind of the after the show yeah like when someone's exactly. sweat yes and they've yes. sang and it's like a bit of billy's sweat yeah, and it's a got bit like of daisies yes. and they're like trying to stay away from each yes. other because they can yes. the scent of each other after mm -hmm. connecting so much I love and it. then having to stay away yes Please, yes. Okay, well, we, I think we may know what's going to be. <laughs> that was the easiest question for you to answer. That was the best. Well, thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you. And good luck with the book and everything thank else. Thank it's you. It's going to be fun to watch the ride. Oh, thank you. It's so, so exciting to, I, I was going to say to be here. It's always exciting to be in my home, but <laughs> it's just really exciting to be able to talk to you. It's such a great podcast. I'm very flattered to be included. Thank you so much. I took so much away from this conversation, but I think the main thing was that as a woman, I don't want to be someone's muse. I want to be the one creating the work. And so we touched on that in so many ways, 
but really honing in on that and going, um, don't be the inspiration for someone's work, be the one creating the work is what, what I took away. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear. Get in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.